A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And then you also have that imposter syndrome of not being able to call them your people because who am I? I haven't lived there. Yeah. I don't deserve the right to speak for the Palestinian people, even though I completely fuck a papa too that I'm from completely wholeheartedly Palestine. Mm. I speak the language, I was raised with the language. You still and that's have something that... that the state wants, right? Yeah. It wants you to not feel that and it wants you to forget that you have your own history. We have been through their lives many times. Kia ora, we're your hosts, Julie and Sarade. We travelled around Aotearoa with our soundy Joey meeting immigrant whānau, listening to stories and discovering what is said or not said between different generations. These stories warmed our hearts and broke our hearts. And over this series, we invite you two to listen in on conversations with my immigrant parents. In this episode of the podcast, we are in Te Upoko Te Ika, speaking with Dad Samir and his daughters Wajd and Shahad. Samir is Palestinian and his wife Amal is Palestinian and Indian. The family moved to Aotearoa from Kuwait when Shahad was very little, while Wajd was born here. The girls also have two other siblings that aren't featured on the podcast. Wajd and Shahad's mum, Amal, has multiple sclerosis and didn't want to be part of the podcast recording, but she was in the room for part of the recording and you'll hear the family referring to Amal throughout the conversation. This episode contains the views of a Palestinian family about the ongoing struggle between Israel and Palestine. So our dad is Samir, born in Egypt. He did um, a lot of schooling there and then moved to Kuwait later in his life. Came to New Zealand about 25 years ago now, so six or so months before I was born. What's he like, Shahid? He's, I guess you would say, the provider, uh, the entertainer, <laughs> the nucleus <laughs> of our wee household and our supporter. Bit of an all-rounder. Works in engineering, really great at his job, really, really hardworking. Not just, I think, in our family, but in the community as well. He's quite quiet when he speaks in English, but really bubbly in Arabic, yeah. which, is, <laughs> which is quite common, I think, for people that speak two languages. Mm. Really, really compassionate, loving dad. Shahad uh, was born overseas in Kuwait. I believe she has a bubbly personality. She's loved by her uh, mates and uh, at school and later at work. And uh, she likes helping people. And she does a lot of voluntary work. And she's continuing doing that alongside her uh, daily work. Wajd, uh, Wajd was born in Auckland. Two and a half years, we moved to Wellington. I see that she's a lovable personality and wherever she walks uh, and leaves, they don't want to give her a chance to leave. They want to keep her as much as they can. And this happened in more than one occasion, which telling me that she is good in what she does and she, like people, people like her. There was the invasion in Kuwait and the invasion happens in any country, everybody's affected seven months under occupation, then Kuwait was liberated and all of this sort of aftermath and after war. I decided that it is not to the best of my uh, children to raise them and also myself, I was not happy to continue. So I make the decision to move. Then when we decided to come back to New Zealand and settle, I resigned and I came. I came to hear that group of our community have had their own organization to meet with each other 
The Palestinian community? Yeah, Palestinian community. And I was introduced to one who was the president at that time. There's a big Palestinian community in Auckland, eh? I didn't know that when we decided to come. uh, At that stage, Shahid was not at school. She entered uh, kindergarten. She had a relief that there was an Arab (laughs) who came earlier than her, uh, a boy. And she was always around him until he had been moved to primary, so... His name was Ahmed. (laughs) I don't remember much. Obviously, I really, like, liked his mum. We're still in contact with his mum, actually. Are they Palestinian? Yeah. They are, yeah. They actually picked me up yeah. the first day I arrived in Christchurch. Mm. That first year in Christchurch, I got put into, like, this flat on a university accommodation and I just couldn't make friends. Like, mm. it was impossible. Yeah, no one tells you yeah. that the only reason you have friends in high school is because you sit with the people mm. every day. Yeah. When you decided to go and you told us, I, I was not encouraging. I felt that you want to get out of the house just to get out of the house and to have the experience. Mm. And I was worried about that. Mm. As I told you, mm. I've been myself as 18 years leaving the country to go to Egypt. Mm. And it was hard for me. Mm. I used to live in my house of my father. Mm. I do not even go to the grocery or to buy anything mm. for house. I do not cook. I do not do this or that. Mm. Suddenly I am alone, just have to deal with the whole affairs of life in another country. So I know that it is not that easy. And I couldn't see that there was some sort of justification for you to go there. Mm. That's all. I was at a really crucial point where if I had stayed, I think it would have made me, like a lot of people that I know now, resent my family and resent the religion and almost go the other way. I ended up moving away for four years. It was a long, it was a long amount of time. I did recognise that you had to do it. Family side, I was quite conscious that it, now it was just me. So, you know, just in terms of helping mum and stuff like that, I also had to be a bit more independent, like plan a bit more. I guess that's why I'm so obsessed with like lists and what's happening in three hours and what are we having for dinner. And your reminders every two minutes <laughs> My on your reminders. phone. But it's helped us, I think as a family, it's helped me as an individual. Having having you back helps a bit, but I think maybe we clash because I've gotten used to you not being here, maybe. I guess because I've moved away and come back so many times, mm. it would be awkward for you to figure mm. out like what place and like how long I'm going to be here for and mm. how, I guess, reliable I am but Mm. I was worried that you would resent me for moving away because I remember thinking about it for ages and being like, I'm going to be leaving. Because Mama used to be able to walk at that point. No, definitely not resentful. A part of me was like, why do we have to do it now? But definitely not resentful. Mm. I think we were proud of you, actually. Right before I went, I think we were at our breaking point. I was 18, you were 22 Mm. when I moved out. Mm. And now you're 28, I'm 24. Mm. Like, it's crazy that we've lived together for so long. And, like, I think I was at the point where if I didn't move away, Mm. we would just be losing it. Like, Mm. I think... And now I I, I genuinely don't believe we argue. Like, I mean, maybe we bicker as siblings, but... Definitely bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Who wouldn't? I'm honestly. the alpha. <laughs> There's got to be one. And I'm happy not being the alpha. <laughs> I have no problem with it. Yeah. No, we're, we're lucky to have each other, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Wajd had been living in Ōtautahi for a few years already when the terrorist attack by a white supremacist happened on March 15th, 2019. And in this next section, she talks about what being in the city at the time was like. I mean, it made it obviously a lot harder when 
March 15th happened a couple of years later because I knew all of the people directly. I don't know, it was kind of beautiful in a way to have established those relationships before everything happened. Because mm-hmm. you have been there in Christchurch when this tourist act took place. Yeah. yeah. You're in, working. Uh, in a mall not far away from yeah. the place. Yeah, I was working at Ballantines. I remember hearing everything that was happening one of the girls checked her phone and was like, oh, my God, there's been, like, a a terrorist attack. And I'll never forget how horrible this was. I remember thinking, oh, my God, a Muslim or an Arab must have gone out and committed some act of terror because I was shocked that they were calling it a terrorist attack. I didn't even know it was in New Zealand. While it was happening, being like, oh, great, like, I'm going to have to go home Mm. and really internalise this. I called Mama and then she explained to me, like, are you okay? Like, it's not a Muslim or an Arab man, it's a white man that's gone into the mosque. It was the first time I've ever experienced anything where no one knew what the truth was. Mm. Like, we had to almost wait for the dust to settle for, like, Mm. six or seven hours to know what had happened. Yeah. And I remember checking my phone and being like, holy, I just realised it's Friday. Mm. My flatmate was like, wait, what do you mean it's Friday? What's the significance of that? And then I said, it's the Friday prayer. This is when the most amount of people are in the mosque. Usually men will go and that's the one time of week where they will have the khutbah or like the, the sermon. big sermon, yeah. And then I just started crying because I mm. just was like, my dad goes every week. Yeah, exactly. It could have been us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so bad to think that way. Baba, I don't think you've ever, ever missed a Friday prayer yeah, in no, my entire life. To. Yeah. And then like the chaos of messaging all of my friends, waiting for them to reply to say that they were safe and that their dads were safe. And then there were two friends that just didn't reply. Yeah. Three or four days later, a post saying, like, this is my dad and he died on Friday. My, my manager then, who was just incredible, gave me two weeks bereavement leave. She was like, you have suffered a bereavement and, like, mm. your people have suffered a bereavement. You need to have yeah. that time off. And I bottled it up for so long. And then three weeks after it happened, I decided to go and, like, lay a flower down. Mm. And then that was the first time I ever had a panic attack. And then I remember just being like, I can't go there. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that, actually. You are telling us. And then my flatmate was like, no, you need to, like, you you know, this will make you You feel better. You have to process that, yeah. Yeah. And then the cameras were in my face. They were recording me while I was crying. Yeah. It was horrible. That was, I think it was that year that I decided to move back home. Mm. And, yeah, I was just like, I need to heal for a little bit. I can't be here. And also I felt that people were really supportive when it happened and then it felt like almost a month afterwards people were like okay Muslims are getting too much empathy now Mm. Muslims are getting too much support from the government it felt like we even went the complete opposite way it took me some time to process it as well because um, yeah what was it like because you wore a hijab yeah I mean so much harder for you you know I had sort of dreams that like there was a shooting on the train oh my god yeah (laughs) I think there was like two of those because I catch a train (laughs) but then you know it got to a stage where you know even in Islam, we are like, if something's supposed to happen, it will happen, you know, everything is in Allah's hands. So Mm. for me to stress out that someone may shoot me, it's extra anxiety and stress for for nothing. And not just me, like mama as well, you know, she's got Mm. multiple sclerosis. Mm. She's already got high anxiety. Mm. The first Friday after that also was overwhelming because all the community sort of different parts of the community representing different parts of the city mm. coming visiting and showing solidarity standing around the mosque when mm. we had our Friday prayer being contacted by different churches mm. some call by phone some send uh, food mm. some uh, 
came in person on that day and talked to us. Mm. And the most interesting thing that I didn't expect, actually, it was a surprise. But I think it was the different layers of that that we had to deal with. It wasn't just a shooting. It yeah. was, okay, what, what do we have to think about in terms of our own safety if there was a retaliation or if some yeah. psychopath did something on his own? How was that going to represent on us who, who were visibly minorities and who we had scuffs? We also had another layer. What retaliations will come within our own community if something happened to one of our own mosques? Mm. I just sort of get paranoid, like, okay, Dad, like, do you know the exits when you're going to Friday prayer? Mm. Can you check they're open? I wish that my response afterwards, I think I have a a tendency to be quite pessimistic and quite cynical, and I remember thinking, well, if a white woman wears a headscarf and it's okay, why wasn't it okay for, for Arabs or Muslims to be wearing headscarves all this years? And, like... I very much just took the other side of it and I think it it unleashed like a frustration that had built up for years because I felt like it wasn't okay to be a Muslim in New Zealand. I wish that I had looked at it in a different way. I wish I had looked at it and been really happy that we've gotten to where we are now and we've progressed. But I was very much just like, is this the end or is this just an exception that we're making this time? And will Mm. racism still continue and xenophobia? Mm. I felt like it still did continue. Mm. So that was kind of hard because I was trying to not be as cynical, but I couldn't help but be cynical. I mean, I don't think Wajd has been cynical. I think that everything she says is completely (laughs) legitimate, completely justified. And I can see how all of the rage and sorrow expressed by white people in New Zealand at that time, while I'm sure a lot of it was genuine, it also felt like, oh, my God, the lens has been turned on to us now. We have to come up with something important. We have to come with this feeling. And it's like, where has that been all this time? You and I have talked a lot about this, about the ways that people learn to present the impression of care, the impression of accountability, and act as though they are changed without Mm. actually changing anything. Mm. Because it's easy to express a kind word or a kind gesture, but it's harder to keep that going after years, after all the immediate feelings of shock have worn off. And I really feel it when they talk about the complexity of the aftermath, like feeling immediately what's going to be the retaliation. Mm. Is there going to be retaliation on this side? Will there be retaliation to that retaliation? Like there's so much that they had to think about that I think most people only react to the one thing that happened. But Mm. for them and their community, they had to think about all the potential aftershocks to that event. The phrase they are us, which got bandied around so intensely at the time, number one is a huge lie because Muslim Fano in New Zealand, migrants of colour in this country have never felt like one of us, whatever one of us actually means. And number two, it's incredibly othering. Number three, that energy should be turned back on to white institutions, white people, white systems in this country. They are us should mean white supremacists are a part of those systems. We needed that sentiment about whiteness. That's the thing that we need to accept rather than, 
on some sort of false sentiment about how a certain group has always been a part of society here when that's just not true. In the next part of the podcast, Samir, Shahad and Wajd remember how their lives changed when they found out Amal was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. We found out uh, in Wellington well, maybe 10 years or so. But actually... Maybe 10 years? Yeah. It feels like it's been longer. Do you remember when you found out? No. I remember really clearly. I was in a I don't taxi. think we had a conversation We didn't about have a conversation it. about it. We always assumed... It was a back issue. It was a back issue because she used a cane. And yeah. I remember just thinking she had a bad back. But then mm. now looking back on it, the fact that I didn't question she'd had a bad back for like five yeah. years <laughs> is a bit silly. But anyways, mm. I was in a taxi with her in it's Dubai. It's not silly, you were young. Yeah, yeah, mm. I guess I was. In Dubai, we were visiting Uncle... God, I forgot his name for a second. Fadi. Uncle Fadi. Mm. And I remember her saying to him in the front seat that she had multiple sclerosis. Mm. And I remember being so shocked because at the time there was mm. a character on Shortland Street called Sarah oh, yeah. who had multiple sclerosis. Representation matters. Representation matters. <laughs> and then we were and we were religiously watching Shortland Street yeah. at that point because mm. um, when you went to Hajj, Daddy, who babysat us for the whole month, made us watch it each night. Mm. So we became, like, obsessed with it for years afterwards. Mm. We just, like, religiously watched it. And then I remember turning to her and saying, oh, my God, you have multiple sclerosis. Like, I had no idea. And then she said, how did you, what, how do you know what multiple sclerosis is? Like, yeah. how did you find out? And then I told her. she didn't her, know. She didn't know. And then I remember explaining to her that this character on Shortland Street initially started using a cane and then over time became more and more disabled. Yeah. I think I would have been around 12 or 13 when I properly found out, which in hindsight is an, it's actually quite recent. Yeah, it was 10 years ago. But, yeah, I remember thinking about it and then going home and being like, we never really had that opportunity to sit down and talk about it. And I mm. think it is because, like you said, you actually didn't know what was happening yeah. for so long. Even herself, she didn't know that she would end up finally like yeah. this because I remember one stage she was using more the walker mm. and sometimes uh, going around and physio from the hot hospital visiting her and then she was suggesting to do modification in the mm, toilet. Yeah. So she said, okay, I'll, let's do the first one because it is closer. Mm. While the physiotherapist thought of doing the other one because it is wide enough. Mm. So I realized and explained to your mom that she's looking ahead. Yeah. You will be in the chair and you need to get in. You can't get in this one. Mm. So let her, because she was not sort of agreeing. Yeah, because it's been hard uh, yeah, on her and, as well. Uh, and this God, is how it was. Yeah, so it was, yeah, so it was going progressively. Yeah. And Mama was always really lively. Yeah, like, she still is. She still is. She's still <laughs> yeah. making us go out for coffee every bloody weekend. <laughs> she, she, like, she yeah. obviously has always wanted yeah. to go out and do things. Larger than life. life. Absolutely yeah. larger Yeah, but than that's life. why me and you are like that. Yeah. Yeah. She she's the one that supports my solo travel. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At first, she was worried when I said about my OE, but then she was really excited to hear about it. Yeah, no, I yeah. remember telling um, Bob I wanted to go to Morocco, and he's like, "But it's in Africa. Like, what, what about Turkey?" <laughs> and and she was like, "No, no, 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 no. She she has to she has to do it." Wow. So that so yeah, I booked, <laughs> and it was amazing. And yeah. she has diabetic because she's diabetic mm. and this doesn't help as well. Yeah. So. 
we've just got a really wonderful (laughs) (laughs) genetic mix of diseases and it's fantastic. (laughs) No, it is what it is. I thought about this a lot. I've wondered if it happened to a family that wasn't as stable as us or even if it happened to a partner Mm. that wasn't as loving I mean I know a lot of people come out of it and they actually get divorced from their partners or they leave their partners because they're like I can't care Mm. for you the thing is interesting just last week she has been in hospital Mm. you know so last time she was in hospital five years ago before we go to Hajdu I think so she maybe a couple of times she was in ED and out but she never uh, so I I missed there for a few nights so Mm. I was telling her when visitors said life is not the same. Yeah, it's not. It's not. So, it's so quiet. It yeah. is not like it's what, it is not, it. it's not like what you think that yeah. you are a burden and yeah, troubling so us not. and those yeah. actually we you are missed. How's it how's it been like with you, Baba? I think you you have the regarding, most to say, yeah, regarding yeah. Mama and Mama's MS. sort of MS and everything. Yeah, uh She's so lucky to have you, mm. to be honest. Like, first and foremost. We're lucky to have you, yeah. We're so lucky and she's yeah. so lucky, I think. And and I'm lucky also to have her because although she is not uh, in her best mm. nowadays, but definitely she had a great role mm. in uh, raising you as well. She is my partner for 34 years mm. and we have very good times and much mm. better times. And now, unfortunately... Yeah. She is the one that uh, mm. not well. Mm. At one stage in my life, I was in a situation also health-wise that mm. she was there for me, and this mm. was happened. Not go detail on this, mm. but this happened maybe earlier in our marriage, mm. and uh, I can't forget that. Mm. I appreciate what she does, although mm. now sometimes her condition is a little bit more stressful mm. on us of all, but. I appreciate also that you are helping because mm. I'm getting older and I have my issues as well and mm. I cannot do it for her without you. It was not an easy and... Uh, it's a load that needs to be shared between yeah, us. Yeah, life yeah. needs yeah. to be shared. I always tell people that I feel like you kind of raised me in a way. Mm. And you, you got your licence really young yeah. and you would like drop me off to work and pick me up. What was it like? For you being like the mother figure, I guess. You know, I've never really looked outside of Wellington in terms of jobs, qualifications or whatever, despite maybe in Australia getting more for for my qualifications. But I think it's paid off in terms of blessings. I think I came to the realisation at the end of uni that, okay, like, how's my life going to look like going forward? How is dad, you know, going to, you know? So I think I made a decision at that stage, like, okay, Life admin-wise, I will be leading this because I don't see anyone else who will be leading this. With with mum, you know, taking her recipes and, and cooking, um, making sure everyone has something, making sure the washing's out. Mm. But I sort of considered that, I would say, I don't know, maybe an obligation, maybe because in our culture and our religion you, you, you support one another. Mm. But I'm in no way resentful towards anyone for that. It's pretty much a blessing to be able to support the family mm. and cook for my dad. Mm. I know people that have lost parents and, and they tell me every day you have, count yourself lucky because you're going to look back and you're going to say, oh, I actually took mum to the hospital or I dropped wedged off. Nobody regrets doing stuff like that, you know. They regret not stepping up when they had the chance to. I feel like I'm the main person responsible 
for my grandparents and um, sometimes it feels like I'm the only person in the family here that has that responsibility, even though I have a younger brother who is a whole adult, he's not underage or anything, but it feels like sometimes you don't want to ask that of your mm. younger sibling mm. to like have to step up to um, do these things. I think I would hope that he would want to reach out and ask if there was stuff that needed to be done, but the point that she makes is so true in that you're never going to look back and be like, I wish I didn't do that. Mm. Um, you might at the time feel like, I wish this wasn't the situation that mm. I was in. It's something that you know you're going to be happy you did, but that doesn't make the doing it any easier. Yeah. It can yeah. still be really hard in the moment. Yeah. And it is still a huge responsibility. It definitely is everything that Shad is saying, which yeah. is like, I look back and I love cooking a meal for them and yeah. um yeah like it is it is what she's saying it's a blessing to be able to do that and yeah. I was thinking about because they'll um potentially have to go into rest home soon and thinking about oh that's actually pretty hard and like a thing that you don't want to happen um even though I think in the past I would have been like oh that would have made life easier but yeah I guess it's also like the way our society and communities are set up that everyone's made to want to focus on their own life as an individual and it's not set up to be able to cater for communal living yes. more. Yes, We can't underplay how hard this is. I mean, this is the reason why so many people don't do it. This is the reason why so many people do end up regretting the end of their parents' lives or the end of their grandparents' lives because they actually can't come to the table, you know, for so many reasons. Mm. But the reason it's hard is because it's just really hard thing to do. I think part of the reason I feel so bad or emotional about it, though, is, like, I feel guilty about that resentment because I can't, yeah. like, say truthfully that there's, like, no resentment. Mm. So when I hear someone like Shad it feels like she has absolutely no resentment about it and I guess I want to get to that place as well. Hmm. Can work up to it. Yeah. Shahad can be the goal. <laughs> <laughs> she is goal. <laughs> In this next part of the podcast, the family talk about their Palestinian whakapapa. When you came to New Zealand, Baba, yeah. did you have to come on a refugee status because... As a Palestinian, obviously, you're stateless. Or how did you manage to come without a passport? Palestinians who moved out of Palestine, different people with different countries. Some countries, like Jordan, gave them citizenship because they needed citizens. It was mm. just starting and coming up. Other countries, they don't need citizens, so they don't want to give them citizenship even after that many years. Wow. Even for their children born with their country, they will not give them citizenship. Mm. What they gave them is traveling document. It is issued by Egyptian government. So for oh. us, as an ID, for us to say that we are Palestinian refugees, for us that we can use to travel. Right. Saying that the strange thing is on the same traveling document, Egyptian government will say, Please help him pass this, 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 whatever, through, through borders and other borders. Maybe the third point there, this document doesn't automatically give the 
residence and the right, uh, the, the, the right to visit Egypt without a permit. Well, then what's the point of it? You have to have a passport. You have to have a sort right, of identity. Right, so it gives you an exemption. So that you are living in the country with a document. Right. You want to travel. If other countries will come you, that's fine. Mm. For Baba being a Palestinian stateless person is different because yeah. he needs to think about the logistics, bringing his family over, higher education. Whereas for me and you, being Palestinian stateless, we don't think about logistics. Well, I was, we, born, I you was, were born, yeah, here, I was born here with a passport. And, like, you know, okay. I've got a New Zealand passport. We think more about, okay, what does it mean to be a Palestinian Kiwi? Mm. How are we going to raise our children? With the Palestinian... Uh, document, although I am here as a New Zealand resident, I couldn't go back visit Kuwait with the passport mm. because I lost my residence mm. and I cannot get a visit yeah. visa on my traveling document. Right. It was a very hard decision to come. Mm. Then after living here, it was raising you up. Mm. The question is there always in mind, was it the right decision yeah. or the best decision? Was it? And every time we come to the conclusion, yes, it is. The awareness around what's happening in Palestine and Palestine is always a great thing, you know, having mm. more people speaking about it, having people like Bella Hadid coming mm. out and posting on Instagram and making it, you know, the, the cool hip trend to stand with yeah. marginalised <laughs> communities. That is actually really a positive. And I know a lot of people might not see it that way. I think yeah. with that positivity comes a lot of, again, cynicism with mm. only hopping on the trend when it's really a hot topic. It's a great and a bad thing because sometimes when you want to be heard, you're not heard. Mm. But then when someone else speaks out about it, it's this big conversation that you're having. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I get where you're coming from. I believe any coverage is good coverage. And, and we're one Palestinian family. We can't pretend to represent all of the Palestinians everywhere, you know. It's not a trend. It's not a phase. It's something we have to live with. Yeah. The logistics of actually being stateless that, that Baba spoke about are not a trend. Our very life and existence, Palestinian existence, is political, yeah. you know. So... But saying that, though, different people go through different levels of understanding. You know, they learn about it. And, and, and I think that's why we have hope, you know. We, we continue to advocate for it. We celebrate Palestinian culture. You know, we engage in political activism here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, learn from other people with the same struggles. I think what sucks is that the work that we're doing for this kaupapa mm. is working against us in the way that if we were to choose to go back or we were wanting to head back to Palestine or mm. Israeli military yeah. is so... Well, that's one of their weapons, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like yeah. the facial recognition software, mm. it's this constant battle of do I stand up and speak when my voice needs to be heard mm. or do I stay quiet in hopes that I'll be yeah. able to go home and visit mm. and get through the border without this complication it's actually really yeah, hard to... especially for people who have family there, you know. Yeah. Like, I can't claim that what someone's doing is less significant than what I'm doing because yeah. them having a donation box in the mosque yeah. could be practically all they can do if they actually have family in the West Bank, yeah. you know. Our family was from Yaffa, which is Tel Aviv now, so we are expelled 1948. We don't have family there anymore. They've all died. It's, it's also... It looks different for everyone. Yeah, it looks yeah. different for everyone. It's also the, the burden of representation, you know. I think some Palestinians feel it more than others. Some can't. 
you know, out of out of fear. If they have lived in a refugee camp, you know, it brings back trauma for them. For us, our case is is unique in the world. Some people have been uprooted from their country at 1948, literally uprooted. They killed and made mascaras to make people leave. But when they started in 1948, they were trying to get it as empty as they can. Mm. So they have done everything under the sun. They have never stopped for anything. Nobody cares. And now they are celebrating this Nakba as their Independence Day. And while we are celebrating this anniversary that it is our Nakba, it is very strange. And it is for 74 years and going on. Mm. And they do whatever they do and nobody cares, and the United Nations cannot do anything. It cannot even sometimes condemn what they are doing. Mm. That's what's frustrating. And this is very frustrating, that they see this country that is supporting terrorism is an independent, democratic country, while Mm. Palestinians are the terrorists and the Palestinians who deserve to be died. Mm. I think the erasure, or like the completely, the fact that there are people out there who genuinely believe Palestine is in the wrong and that they are occupying land, that number is so high. Or it's a two-sided conflict. It's so frustrating. You know, the fact that Palestinians are called terrorists, all of this conversation about Hamas, all of this is so unbelievably frustrating. And to know that that conversation is out there being had by world leaders, and I think it goes back to the whole idea of of Eurocentric lives or Euro lives being more important than Arab lives... I think it's really important as well with what's happening in Ukraine, which is absolutely horrible. I think seeing the world, how they reacted to that, it's not bad for Middle Eastern people to feel that heartbreak and to feel that sadness about why were these people not here for us. And they're ignoring that there are generation after generation of Palestinians who have been expelled from their country still living in hundreds of thousands now in Syria in Lebanon, some of them in Iraq now, they are fleeing Iraq because they have been targeted in Iraq under the lawless state there. Hundreds of thousands, they are still living in camps. Mm. Our suffering is nothing compared mm. to those people. They are still living in camps. Mm. Many of those people still living under this condition, yeah. some in Jordan, some in Lebanon, some in Syria, so where did these people come from? They did not come out of the, the ground. Israel is trying to say that it's they should settle. Israel is considering this problem is the con- problem of the neighboring countries while they are the ones who uprooted those people, didn't give them at any stage the right to come back to return. Mm. Even they did not think about even compensating them. And I think for me, it's so hard. It's so hard, especially... Mm you know, as a Gen Z, trying to equally advocate and support for every single issue that's happening Mm. in the world. We have climate change, we have what's happening in Ukraine, Mm. we have the Palestinian people, and you're wanting to advocate for all these things, but then your identity is tied into the fact that your people, and then you also have that imposter syndrome of not being able to call them your people, because who am I? I haven't lived there. I don't deserve the right to speak for the Palestinian people, even though I completely fuck a papa to that, and I'm from completely wholeheartedly Palestine. Mm. I speak the language, I was raised with the language, 
you still and that's have something that, that the state wants, right? Yeah. It wants you to not feel that and it wants you to forget that you have your own history or your own food or your own Remember when we went to the land. mall mm. that yeah, one yeah, time? Yeah, I do remember. Yeah. I will never forget that day. <laughs> I remember. We went to the mall and back when there used to be lots of Israelis pushing those those nail products, and I must have been, I think, around 12 at mm, that age. Yeah. We went to the stand and we were talking to her and I could tell straight away that she was Israeli because the way she was looking at us. And Israeli people have quite a similar, like, it's almost like a French accent where mm. it's like they speak they speak both um, dialects and they kind of, like, twist their accent a little bit. And I noticed straight away because she was talking about the Dead Sea. And then remember when we spoke about how we were Palestinian? Yeah. And this woman looked us in the eye and said, but you've never been there, so you're not Palestinian. Mm. And I remember the heartbreak of being like, but I am a Palestinian. Mm. And recently, when I was reading the other side of the yeah. whole conflict, yeah. I was reading what Israeli people had to say about it. And I saw this girl that I know post something on Instagram about how we can't call it settler colonization because it's not colonization and that completely mm. desensitizes the whole subject. I started to then question myself mm. and think, am I on the wrong side of this debate? Mm. As a Palestinian, mm. I thought to myself, hang on, have we actually committed the crimes? Mm. Are we the ones that are wrong? Mm. And if I'm thinking that as a Palestinian, mm. I'm sitting here thinking Israelis must really, really believe that we are in the wrong. Unfortunately, when you are creating facts on the ground and trying to make the situation which isn't complicated, complicated, I mean, it's becoming more more uncontrollable the the more we don't do anything, you know. And if, if we don't have these difficult conversations, then it will reach a point because it, cause it has exactly. to reach a point because it's not sustainable. Exactly. Having discussions of world leaders talking about one state, two state, there are genu you genuinely cannot have two states. Yeah. <laughs> because if, if one is well, no they, longer there. <laughs> they technically exist as a two yeah. state right now, right? Mm. But it's just really frustrating. Yeah. Mm. It's just really hard. And I understand why people step away from the conversation when yeah. it's being had. Yeah. Because it's exhausting to know that there is a whole generation, generations of people who believe the complete opposite of what you believe. That's what makes it so painful being a Palestinian. And many, many people there living there, Israelis, they are living with uh, multiple citizenship. They live what they want there. They go somewhere else, come back. While Palestinians, they, they can't go anywhere. They can't even leave. And uh, they are across the border from their home and uh, they don't have any rights wherever they live. This is very frustrating. Nakba is 74 years now. Then it will be totally theirs after some years. They are full. They don't know that it is transferring from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. If not all over the world, at least within the camps yeah. that is around their borders. Mm. And the time will come that everybody will, will stand up against them. Mm. We know in history, this, mm. this land was for many fights. At one stage, it was taken from us for 94 years. Mm. Then it came back. So it is not also something on the heart of Palestinians only. It is in the heart of many Arabs, many Muslims. Mm. So it, it is not going to go away. They will not mm. win it. They will cannot lie to all the people all the time. Yeah. We have been through their lives many times. I think Samir, especially, is really talking about how 
there is a fear of a rewriting of history happening right now. And when we think about the rewriting of history, it's something that you think happens in the past and has happened. Like here in Aotearoa, when the history books have always been written from a Eurocentric perspective and only now we're starting to learn more about what happened from Māori perspectives, like teaching of the land wars in schools. Um, But it feels like it's always framed like it was those bad guys in the past, but actually it's also a contemporary experience happening right now. And we saw how much the Justice for Palestine group in Wellington struggled just to light up a public building with the colours of the Palestinian flag. Like, they got told they couldn't do that. So that's still adding to that rewriting of history, the erasure of that struggle. What I really appreciate is their perspective around how all these struggles are linked and Mm -hmm. you can't just fight for the liberation of your own group without supporting the liberation of everyone. Exactly. It is fucking scary how Israel's influence is this intense. But it's also like... The trying to rewrite it is something super complicated. Yeah. What she was saying, she doubted yes. herself. And if yes. she doubted herself, how is everyone else not sucked into Exactly. Something? It is as everything. It goes back to imperialism. Absolutely. Back to white supremacy. Home is wherever my family and friends and community are. Mm. So it's not particularly one space. It could be one or more. Mm. And at the moment, that's <laughs> at the moment that's Aotearoa, Jordan, Kuwait. Yeah, and my heart is in Palestine. Home is where you have freedom and respect of your being. This is home. Based on this perspective, for me, New Zealand is home. Mm. My heart is in Palestine. I am a Palestinian. Kiwi. I always talk about Palestine. I'll always defend the right of Palestinians to return to their home and to live in their home as citizens, not being classified as third-class citizens or whatever. My home is Kuwait. For some time, I've been raised there, so it is in my heart. And although we had some difficulties at one stage, Still, I feel good toward Kuwait, where I've been raised most of the time. So this is where home is Mm. for me. I'm going to go a little bit more um, controversial with my my answer. (laughs) I think home is wherever I have a bed, to be honest, Mm. and wherever I am. I think my family, obviously, are really, really important to me and are my home, but I don't think you necessarily have to have one home. Wajd, I think that you and your whole family's commitment to Palestine and to one another is just, I, don't, I can't think of a more intense word than inspiring, but it is more than that. Like, you're going to be a light for so many people. And, and you already you. are. You already are. And thank you for um, sharing that light with us on the podcast. Mā rake rake ana te kitea, he ringa raupa tēnei whānau, e whakapau kaha ana ki te whawhai mō te mana me te noho here kore o te whenua ukaipō o Palestine. Nei rā te mihi. And we hope a free Palestine will be realised in our lifetimes. You can check out photos and videos of all our families on Facebook at Where Are You From Really, on Instagram at Convos With Mai, online at tahi.fm or rnz.co.nz forward slash conversations, or follow the podcast on all major podcast providers. 
Conversations with My Immigrant Parents was created, produced, and directed by Julie Tool and Saray De Silva. If you wish, you can follow us at Saray De Silva or at Julie Tool with two U's. Location recording by Joey Siasoko. Sound post-production by Emmy Pagoni. Music composed and produced by Tal, Shantani, and Shalina Sandrin. And videos are edited by Josh Young. Our cover image is illustrated by Nga Mutani Jones and designed by Sonia Milford. A big mihi also to Tim Burnell and Jody Huani from RNZ Commissioning. Conversations with my immigrant parents was made possible with the support of New Zealand On Air. He kōnai ipurangi tēnei matereo irirangi o Aotearoa. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.